Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we'll be talking about international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way too. And today we're going to be thinking about one of the big ones, culture. What is the impact of culture on an international reputation and how does that play out? Simon, when you uh, identified your five categories you were going to analyze as components of of a national brand, culture was one of those. What did you find when Mm. you started looking to evaluate the culture of countries that were significant enough to be considered as having a brand? What we discovered over the years, particularly in the Nation Brands Index, is that perceptions of culture are quite a good indicator or predictor of the overall strength of a country's reputation. Certainly, I don't know of any countries that have a good overall image, but have a weak or negative image as far as their cultural production is concerned. Mm -hmm. Of course, when we use the word culture, we have to be a little bit careful because it means really quite a large number of different things, specifically culture in the anthropological sense, um, the, the culture of your society but it also means cultural production. So normally in in the context of public diplomacy and soft power and so forth, what we normally mean is cultural productions. We mean the expression of the nation's culture through its cultural activities and operations. So we're talking about the arts, we're talking about music, we're talking about literature, we're talking about this kind of stuff, but we're also talking about cultural heritage, the perception Mm -hmm. that a country has been doing culture for a long time and that that culture has some kind of value for humanity. Mm-hmm. It's more than just meaningful to its own people, that it's got some broader, um, perhaps permanent value. And, and what I've found is that the countries with the strongest overall images are invariably countries that people perceive produce culture that's of value. And I think the reason for this is because we see culture as being, if you like, the personality of a nation. It's the way that we guess at its values its character, what it stands for, whether it's got depth or richness or intellect and things of that sort. So enormously difficult for a country to get anywhere on the world stage if it's not associated with culture. The other thing that we discover is that it's not fair. (laughs) The way that people regard countries and their culture is often ill-informed, misinformed. And the example that always, always comes up is Iran which regularly ranks, whenever it's been included in the Nation Brands Index, very, very low indeed, normally at the bottom of the index, but also on cultural heritage. And the point I always make is that you've got uh, people in uh, the United Kingdom, the United States, in Western Europe, people who ought to know better, ranking Iran specifically on the question of cultural heritage right down at the bottom of the index, you know, dead last, 50th. At one point, I noticed that the average American ranked Iran's cultural heritage 28 places lower than Canada's. And Canada, forgive me for saying so, is a country that was invented last Thursday. Uh, (laughs) Iran has been doing continuous cultural production for 6,000 years, arguably one of the cradles of Western civilization. How does that happen? I think it happens because of the name change. I think that if they were asked to evaluate Persia, people would say, oh, Persia, I like their rugs, I like their cats. They were mean dudes in that film about the ancient Greeks, and a whole history fills in. 
And uh, I think it's a tremendous advantage when a country can appeal to a great history like that. And it's enormous injustice when they're separated from a reality of, of heritage. Uh, you know, Greece is going through its bicentenary at the moment. And I think, well, that's strange that the, just the other year they were telling us that they were 3,000 years old and now they're 200 years old simultaneously. Um, they're really, the image of Greece is so tied to the sense we have of Greece as our source culture, as this great beacon culturally, that even if this, you know, there's such a gap uh, historically between the Greece of antiquity and the Greece of modernity that is 200 years old this year. The Greeks themselves are, are largely to blame for this because they are absolutely obsessed with their own uh, remote antiquity. And it's impossible to have a conversation in Greece or with Greeks about the present day um, presentation of, of Greece in the world without them going back to this wanting to harp on and on and on about their their ancient achievements. The, the point I, I, this may sound harsh, but one of the things I've observed over and over again is that um, by definition, that's not helping them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be having this conversation. And talking about your ancient achievements or your ancient glories is of interest to historians, of course, who are 0.000001% of the people that you want to influence. People are interested in what you're doing right now and what you're going to do in the future. Of course, that's a different thing from cultural relations. And again, yet again, we have to be very scrupulous about distinguishing between the question of the overall image of the country and the sector-specific promotional activities which countries should undertake. Of course, when it comes to cultural relations, um, uh, Greece is quite right to talk about its ancient history as well as its recent, recent history. But imagining that somehow the key to them being admired today, well, if it's not already happening, it's never going to happen. But it is already happening. It's part of the reason why Greece has a relatively good image, because people are aware that it's an ancient civilization. Actually, I think they could do more to make their ancient civilization relevant today. Case in point, if you go to Athens, there are so many beautifully preserved temples to the gods we don't believe in anymore. But when you look at the Greek origins of things we do value, like, for example, Parliament, I went to the Hill of the Panix to see where the Athenian parliament met. There was nothing. There was no, not even a flag there. There was a rusty sign that, some, that the American school had put up 50 years ago. This was you know, the, the point of origin of democracy, supposedly the most important system of government, and yet nothing there. Similarly, in medicine, there's nothing on costs to celebrate this is the home place of Hippocrates. And I, I wish Greece would do more to make their ancient history relevant to the to the present, because if it's not relevant, and then this goes to something that you've always said, what is it about you that's relevant to today, that's relevant to international audiences? Sorry to quote you back at you, but you've often said that countries have to be either decorative or, or countries are perceived as either decorative or helpful. And Useful, yeah. uh, I think there's a lot in yeah. Greek culture that is should be on the helpful side, rather. Yeah. But they 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 seem to invest in the decorative side. Uh, come mm. here and have a selfie in front of the Parthenon, uh, and and I see so much um, that's helpful in that heritage. Yes, I agree with you. 
Um, of course, one of the one of the really important points about cultural presentation is the point I think that perhaps the British Council have understood better than than many cultural institutions, and that's the importance of culture being treated as a shared activity rather than a marketing campaign. And the big mistake that um, the Greeks have been often guilty of in the past, and indeed most countries have been, is imagining that uh, making use of your culture to improve your country's standing in the world is a question of taking your greatest cultural uh, glories from the past, rolling them into a ball and firing them at people, and, and, and basically saying, um, <laughs> and saying, you know, admire this, be in awe of what we've achieved in the past. and and. You know, there, is, there are countries that can get away with that, of course. You know, if you're if you're Russia or you're France or or you're Italy, people kind of expect that and they don't really mind it. But for the, for the majority of countries, and even for the ones with vast cultural hinterlands, it's so much more effective <laughs> if you treat culture as an exercise that you engage in. Britain, sometimes we've talked about our eccentricity as if it were a monument. Uh, and this sort of makes me think that we'd, we'd, we'd have the caption, look on our quirks, ye mighty, and despair, as if we're making a... a sh but I agree that the British Council has moved beyond that. It's not about showing off. And what a great slogan they came up with, connecting futures. This isn't about showing off the past. It's about working out what can we do together to make the future better. Right. And the word that they, they've used now for many years is mutuality. I often say that culture is a bit like jazz. Uh, this is something that annoys jazz fans, but in, in some ways it's much more fun to do than to listen to other people doing it. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I thought, I thought that about sex, but <laughs> well, jazz is a other... cleaner... <laughs> it's a cleaner version of the same, the same story. Um, yes. But, uh, but, you know, isn't, isn't that the truth? That in the end, a really memorable, really effective cultural experience is one way you're participating. Because, you know, culture should be for everyone. It shouldn't just be for the people who are really good at it. That, of course, the people who are really good at it will gain our admiration and set the, the tone and lead. But also everybody else wants to have a go. And there's nothing more fun than being able to splash paint on a canvas or, or bang a drum in, or, or, or shout your your part in a, in a choir and cultural relations carefully chosen phrase is is very effective because it's a very very good way of enabling populations to make friends with each other and one of the things i've often said to to governments over the years is that cultural relations of that sort is actually the only effective form of quote unquote nation branding that i've ever come across it's rather slow takes a long time to achieve a lot of patience. It's very cheap. It doesn't cost an awful lot of money. I mean, compared to what countries spend on defending themselves, it's it's insignificant. Um, requires a lot of very hardworking, very diligent, very imaginative, very well-trained people over a very long period, but in the end it works. And what happens is that if you've made friends with another population through cultural relations and you've explored and shared each other's cultures, you can hate what that country does, but you can't hate the country. Um, and that's so important and so so valuable for, 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 for peace, for trade, for everything that you can possibly imagine. There's an old story that does the rounds in cultural relations, which are, may or may not be apocryphal. But somebody allegedly once did some research amongst uh, young men in Iraq uh, shortly after the US and the UK uh, had invaded and asked young men what they felt about the presence of British and American soldiers on the streets. 
in, in Basra or wherever it was. And the answer came back when they asked about the Americans, the young men would say, I want them to go back home in slightly less mild language than that. And when asked about the British soldiers, they said, no, it's okay. We hope they'll go home one day. And in trying to explore what would create the difference between those two perceptions, it turned out that the young men who'd said that about the Brits were the same young men who had used the British Council Library in Baghdad or Basra or wherever it was. As I say, it may well be anecdotal, but it sort of proves the point, even if it's not true. Um, because you can well imagine how, if over the years you shared a country's culture and kind, well-educated people have taken the trouble to say, okay, so here's Shakespeare. Let's look at your playwrights. Let's see if we can do something together. Let's do an Iraqi British version of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And that's getting together. We, we spoke earlier, didn't we, about the, about the Elysee Accord between uh, France and Germany. The cultural relations were a fundamental part of knitting together the populations of France and Germany. What I like about cultural relations as a concept is that it implies that the cultures will be relating anyway and that the government intervention is some kind of supplemental thing assisting an existing process. Whereas when the, the preferred American term of cultural diplomacy uh, is much more instrumental in its implications. And even if a lot of the same techniques are used, I think that the language we embrace to, to, to describe these approaches has Im implications. You know, the French talk about diplomatie d'influence, the diplomacy of influence, which then um, always is pushing towards what your, what your outcome is going to be as the result of having shared your cultural materials with a foreign audience that we can be prisoners of our language. And I think that at least with cultural relations, the prison has an open door and it's pointing in the right direction. Yes. The, the, the French and the, and the American approach is very male, isn't it? I have the same problem with that as I have with the whole notion, and I've said this before, of soft power. In the end, no matter how soft it is, it's still fundamentally about trying to achieve one country, trying to achieve ascendancy over the other. It's about getting your own way. And the reason I object to that is not because I'm a wet liberal snowflake, it's just because I know what works. What doesn't work on people is when they begin to gather that another power is trying to achieve ascendancy over them, is trying to manipulate them. It makes them dig in their heels and refuse to listen. And once people refuse to listen to you, you're stuck. You can't do any of those things at all. Only and power, power of that kind is inherently unattractive. Yeah. Exactly right. Whereas if, on the other hand, what you're trying to do is to do things for mutual benefit, which after all is one of the fundamental principles of diplomacy, then you're on side with people and you can go places together. And yes, I think Nye actually understands this. It's, it's yes. the people who've read a little bit of him who then see soft power as some magic wand. You know, to those people, I can't quote Nye back at them, but I can quote Carly Simon. You know that uh, you're so vain. You probably think the song is about you. Yeah, this is a it's a very unattractive thing to be self obsessed with your image, and that goes for people and it goes for nation yeah. states too. Indeed, absolutely. So, Nick, what in your view is the future of cultural relations? Where's it going to go? I mean, we know that countries are probably going to close down those huge palaces they have in the elite districts of capital cities because nobody goes to them except people who work for other cultural institutions. The problem is they're in trouble and 
I did a study last year for the British Council looking at worldwide at what the different cultural agencies were saying and doing. And they're all saying we're in trouble because uh, they had trusted to paid services and particularly teaching language classes. And all the language classes closed because of COVID. And they've got no way of making money. They've, uh, they've all got big holes in their budget. And so they're having to go back to basics and explain what it is they do and why governments should go on uh, funding them. So we're, we're in a worldwide crisis of cultural relations, cultural diplomacy agencies right now. I, I think they have to uh, look at the tremendous evidence out there for effectiveness. Things like the, the study that J.P. Singh put out from Edinburgh a couple of years ago showing that countries that spent most on cultural relations got most votes going their way in, in the UN. He found a really, really strong correlation there. I also think that we have to think about reputation as being a form of security because, you know, at a time where the world is increasingly dangerous, rather than thinking about showing off to the world, we need to think about securing our, 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 our situation and ensuring that our reputation is sound and protected. And I see culture and making sure people understand and know your culture as being, uh, ha having that value as, as helping to secure your reputation. Countries that are not known for anything or not known for the right things, not known as a positive presence in the world, are having tremendous difficulty right now. Yeah. Building on your thoughts about uh, national image as a security issue, one of the things that, that I've also often observed is that a country with a weak or a negative image uh, that also doesn't have a great deal of hard power is basically a sitting duck because other countries' governments aren't going to bother to stand up for it if it's attacked because they know that it has no image and therefore their own people won't notice or mind if they come to its aid or not. Yeah, and this was the problem for Ukraine too. You know, exactly to, right. That's, yeah. the, that's, the, that's the classic illustration. And the opposite example perhaps is Hong Kong, where Boris Johnson, on the other hand, despite being a populist anti-immigration leader, performed this very generous gesture of offering full UK citizenship to Hong Kongers um, who, uh, who were entitled to it, three million of them, which was a risky thing for him to do. He, we actually picked him as goodest leader that month, uh, a rather surprising choice, just because he did the right thing. But if you delve into it a little bit deeper, it's almost certainly because he knows that the British population are very well aware of what Hong Kong is. They know it, they like it, they admire it. And if he'd done nothing and left Hong Kong out in the cold, there would have been a popular rebellion is too strong a word, but people wouldn't have been very happy about it. Ukraine, on the other hand, as you rightly state, well, when I researched the image of Ukraine, an awful lot of people in countries like Britain thought that it was part of Russia in the first place. Shocking, but true. And so their, so their weak image is, uh, as I say, it makes them a sitting duck. And good things, they had good things they could have talked about. I mean, this is a country that walked away from nuclear weapons. You know, they could, surely there was something positive they could have pulled out of yeah, that one. But Nick, you know as well as I do that countries can't talk about things because they're not sitting down in some wood panel library having a fireside chat over cognac with public opinion. You know, they Ukraine could spend... $10 million a year telling people about its nuclear disarmament history, as indeed Kazakhstan have tried to do. Does it make any difference? No. Is anybody listening? No. These things don't work. It's what you do. But again, there are things that people do. And Ukraine has reaped something of a dividend from being perceived 
as the underdog, as we've talked well, about. I think that, but I do think culture can help create a kind of uh, hedge for a country. And I was very mm. struck uh, by the, the crisis in Mali in, would it have been 2012, where when, mm. when Timbuktu was threatened, the fact that Timbuktu had been recognized by UNESCO as mm. a, a, a site for all humanity, um, mm. uh, World Heritage Site, uh, that it had these these Islamic manuscripts that caused a lot of concern around the world. There was, in fact, a false alarm in the Guardian that the library had been destroyed, and yes. uh, and I think that because people re- were able to think of Mali as culturally significant, it was possible for the, for France to put together an international intervention, and yes. you compare that success with the problem Afghanistan had. Nobody was interested in helping Afghanistan at that time. I'm sure that that cultural recognition uh, expressed through the, the the UNESCO recognition is a something that works to make a country relevant uh, that, yeah. that otherwise people might not know anything about or think anything about. Indeed, for various reasons, I've been I've been looking at the moment at the the, the World Heritage um, apparatus within UNESCO and the conversations that now go on uh, between member states around designation of, um, of cultural heritage sites. And if you want a glimpse, an early glimpse of how close we are to the international system breaking down, all you have to do is to spend an afternoon just looking at some of the challenges facing the UNESCO uh, cultural heritage groups. It's as if any semblance of a working international order has just completely broken down. No countries listen to any other countries. Every country there is now in there for itself. People from member states who were originally historians and cultural experts who were arguing for for their own sites to be listed have now been replaced by hard-nosed diplomats. And they're just basically fighting each other to have as many of these listings as they possibly can because of the revenue that that brings and because of the boost to tourism. It's become entirely self-interested. It's become hugely, horrendously factional. And uh, the most frightening thing of all is how the expertise, the core expertise in this area, history and culture, is simply no longer considered to be important. But in parallel with that, you've seen this expansion within UNESCO of intangible cultural heritage. And I think their declaration of intangible cultural heritage, was that about 2010, has really helped to move culture or move understandings of culture beyond just the national, into transnational space. And it was wonderful that they recognized the Mediterranean diet because then people in Greece and Turkey and Sicily and North Africa, they're they're all being rewarded and affirmed for something that they share rather than something that divides them. And I I was so encouraged by the intangible cultural heritage discussion coming out of UNESCO. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and don't get me wrong, my, uh, my my words before are not a criticism of UNESCO. UNESCO has hardly put a foot wrong. It's done all the right things. It's a remarkable achievement how it's succeeded in continually updating the, the discussion and the parameters on cultural heritage and what it means. The problem is the member states and the fact that they no longer respect the traditional framework of expertise, which in the end is the only thing that can possibly determine whether something is of value to humanity or not. And they're using every trick in the book to to challenge it, of course, including identity politics. 
you're just Westerners and therefore we have we don't have to listen to you. It's not true. They're not just Westerners. Very far from it. But that's an easy that's an easy target to aim at. But so but we get to when we look at individual countries, we find there are countries that are admired where culture is part of an overall package that the country's offering to the world. Uh, which now, correct me if I'm wrong, but Belgium does very well in the Good Country Index for its cultural profile. Did you work out what that was based on? Basically, in the Good Country Index, as you know, what we don't try to do is to measure um, the historic achievements of a country because that's not what it's about. What it's about is what a country is doing today to foster international engagement in that particular area. So um, a country will score high in its contribution to international cultural exchange uh, if it does a lot of international cultural exchange, if it exports a lot of culture. There are things that I would love to measure in there, but unfortunately they're just not measured and they would be too expensive to measure, like how many countries has have Belgian bands toured in or how many capital cities has its symphony orchestra played in that would be the really good stuff but who measures that and i certainly can't afford to so we're reduced once again in the good country index to using tokens for that like for example how much uh, how many cultural publications is your country responsible for publishing outside your own borders and things like that and belgium by a series of accidents happens to be one of the countries that does rather a lot of that it's rather active so it's good but it's not exactly the classic profile of the country um, exporting masses of uh, cultural production that, that you would expect I, a thing that we haven't really mentioned we've we've spoken almost uh, exclusively about what's sometimes called high culture cultural heritage what we haven't spoken about is 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 a contemporary culture and i think this is very important because of course there are a large number of countries that don't happen to have the parthenon in their backyard and don't happen to have a long um, cultural history that they can point to or brag about or share with others and i'm often asked by governments is there anything we can do even though we don't have those things we don't have the glories of the past and i always say there was a year in which the parthenon was built and that happens to have been a year, a great many years ago, but there's no reason why you can't be producing culture today. There's no reason why you can't be starting traditions. There's no reason why you couldn't make a name for yourself for contemporary culture. And every now and again, we can actually see a blip on the chart. For example, when uh, in Riga, they built the largest and most magnificent public library that had been built uh, in a country for oh, a century, perhaps, that actually made some waves. And it says something about who you are culturally, despite the fact um, that you may not have a millennial cultural history to, to, to brag. I, I often say to these, the countries who say that, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to forge your cultural identity, forge in the sense of build, not forge in the sense of fake. Um, because, uh, because you know, you've got everything to build and everything to prove and start investing money in culture. The problem, as we know, with cultural institutes is that they are perennially underfunded by government because government perennially doesn't have the imagination to see that culture is more than just a kind of charitable obligation. This goes to the nature of the 21st century. And to me, when I hear a government saying, oh, we don't think we ought to pay for cultural institutes, we don't think we should invest in culture, going overseas, it's like somebody in the 19th century saying, we don't think we need a navy. This is so fundamental to how 
countries are going to be seen and perceived and how countries will meet. It's, it's going to be through, you know, this mechanism of culture. Of course, this comes to the United States, where you have a tremendously powerful popular culture. And what struck me studying American public diplomacy is that often the state part has required a balance. That Everybody knows American popular culture, but they don't know American high culture. So, for example, I was reading the other day, during the Cold War, the U.S. government invested in bringing British arts correspondence, the Observer's Ballet correspondent, got a free trip to America so that he could understand that America was more than just popular culture and had a, an equivalent high culture to Germany or to the then Soviet Union. Sometimes the function of the nation state is to balance out perceptions of culture and to, to show all-round strength rather than uh, allow just the, the commercial market to profile the country. To, to predominate, yes, absolutely. Perhaps the most significant argument for why governments should fund culture and fund it generously is because the benefits cut both ways. And cultural engagement uh, with, with other populations is of such enormous value to the domestic population. It, you know, I hate the idea that cultural relations is a few highly educated people in a government department pumping out messages about the country's culture and not involving the domestic population whatsoever. And yet the culture that they're, that they're promoting or selling or engaging with or whatever they're doing belongs to the population. It doesn't belong to the government. It's theirs. And so, again, uh, this is one of the areas in which uh, I think the British Council has really shown the way. They are deeply connected domestically and are forever forging uh, cultural pathways between the British domestic population and the practice of domestic British culture and overseas populations and overseas culture. And that's the great strength of culture. Things that most impressed me about the British Council historically was the work they did during World War II, reaching out to refugees and seeing refugees as being a group worthy of being cultivated, of having British culture explained to them, being brought into British culture, having a cultural dialogue. How would the world be if today we saw asylum seekers as being a great audience for a cultural conversation? People to talk with, people to listen to, people to bring into and engage culturally rather than just some sort of detriment that needed to be fed and housed and, uh, or even warehoused until the time we could return them. Let's go this way. So countries have, uh, or the, the most powerful countries have accepted soft power. They've gone out there and they, they seek to do things that accumulate this soft power, that accumulate admiration of the world. And then, boom, they've got admiration. What do they do with it? It's a, it's a really important question. And, and um, it's, a, it's a question that often comes up when I'm talking to countries that have really, really good images. They don't seem to be able to uh, switch the points and move away from this kind of acquisition model. And you get countries with absurdly, insanely good images, countries that are almost universally admired. And they're still asking every day, how can we get a better image? How can we get a better image? And I often say to them, for God's sake, this is the moment, surely, 
when you should be asking, okay, so we've got this image now, what's it for? What are we actually going to use it for? We've forged this weapon. How are we going to wield it? Well, weapon, of course, is completely the wrong metaphor. And, and the answer, of course, is that if you are admired, then it means that you have influence and you have responsibility to use that influence for the benefit of humanity as well as for your own people. If you have a good admiration, this is the, the basic principle of soft power, if you are admired, if people uh, take your lead in that way, then they look at what you're doing, they pay attention to you, and they're very likely to want to emulate what you do. And that is real power. And one of the things that I'm forever saying to, to the governments of countries like Sweden and Germany, who have these amazing images is, just think for a moment, just stop, just switch off the promotion machine for a moment and think to yourself, about how much true power you have in the world today. And if it's a question of doing, for example, what Finland does, which is using the admiration that it enjoys to encourage other countries to model some of the same, for example, educational systems that Finland has used to such great effect in its own domestic marketplace, then that's Finland doing good. And that's what it's all about. Whenever you've got to the stage where you attract any attention, you attract any respect, where you are admired to any degree, then bang, you've got a huge responsibility yeah. in your hands. How can we use that to better humanity? Not because you'll go to heaven, but because if you better other countries alongside yourself, then everything gets better for you right. too. So where we wind up then is to, to channel American popular culture. And Spider-Man's Uncle Ben, with great soft power, comes great mm. responsibility. Mm. And where countries have got this great image, they need to work to make the world a better place and we come back again to these collaborative projects it's so important to yeah. deal with problems that are too big for any one country to, to solve that's all we have time for this week thanks so much for listening this has been people places power i'm still nick cull and i'm still simon anhold